0: Let's pray, shall we, as we look at that together. Do keep it open, and uh, we'll dig into it and ask the Lord to speak through it tonight. Father, we thank you for your word and for the teaching about God our Saviour. And as we remember who you are to us and for us for all creation, we pray that you will help this truth to lead to godliness as we listen by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, the Christian faith, the church, I think, doesn't always market itself very effectively, does it? Just this week, I was reading a story about an Anglican church leader who allegedly has not acted properly in dealing with some immoral behavior by clergy under their care. And the world thinks when it reads that sort of headline, typical, we knew that Christians can't be trusted, they're all hypocrites, aren't they? This week, I was talking to someone else who spends time working with students in Christian, uh, Christian unions on campuses, and they were just saying how easily Christians in a university can head off into a ghetto and kind of hide, almost invisible, um, in this very difficult, high-pressured, hedonistic, freedom-loving student world. It's easier to kind of be secret as a Christian, and then the gospel's just not seen or heard on the campus, is it? On the other hand, positively, someone's telling me this week how attracted that they were by the lifestyles of church members they saw here when they first began to come along to the church. And seeing that that sort of godly, restrained, humble way that people here love and relate to each other and the healthy relationships of the church members and the marriages in the church as well. Well, Titus 2 shows that this letter is not just about living the good life for Christ, that is the big topic of the series, it's also about, as it were, marketing the Christian message to the world around us. So one of the key verses is at the end of our reading, chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul says that those that live a a, a godly life will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. That's the kind of marketing word, isn't it? The, the, the gospel should be literally it's uh, it's adorned by godly living, like a jewel in a ring. Uh, if if we live a godly life, like a piece of jewelry, it decorates it, emphasises it, reveals the beauty of the gemstone at the heart of it. That's the gospel. The word actually um, adorning there or making it attractive it, it's the word from which we get the word cosmetics. So, actually, here we're really in the kind of the ground floor of Gerald's, aren't we? And we're looking for, you know, the lipstick and the um, eyeshadow and so on that will make the gospel attractive to the world around us. That's the image there. So, how do we do that? Well, a bit of background on this, this letter Titus. If uh, you just come for the first time tonight, Paul has emphasised in chapter one the importance of two things: of good teaching the truth that leads to godliness, chapter 1, verse 1, and also good or godly teachers or church leaders. And those two things, good teaching, good leaders, are important for this particular church, for Titus's church, of which he's pastor on the island of Crete, because, as it were, fires have broken out. In the church, and Titus is being sort of parachuted in, like those firefighters in the remote American woodlands, where they they land on the parachute and they fight the fire in the forest. He's been sent in to fight two particular fires that are raging in this church, this very young church in Crete. Two different directions the fires come from. One is the fire of Cretan moral laxity, their moral freedoms are fairly extreme Saw in chapter 1 the way that Paul describes Cretans as um, lazy brutes and evil gluttons and liars and so on so it's disrupting households that kind of Cretan culture that's got into the church chapter 1 verse 11 they're teaching things that don't lead to the good life but actually to the godless life so that's one thing Cretan moral laxity the other one is that there is Jewish moral legalism very different thing isn't it but in the same church it's a problem there are people putting rules on church members that supposedly guide and govern their living their behavior but actually are not able paul said last time to make them pure at all because rules can't do that so you've got these two fires raging and titus has been sort of parachuted in to fight them so he's the kind of you know the the problem solver here or actually he's not is he He's actually, he's not the key to the solution here. The key is actually one thing. He's not got a whole ton of equipment. He's got one thing. We saw it, again, back in chapter 1, verse 1. His equipment to fight these fires is simply the truth that leads to godliness. He's to teach the gospel, to teach the truth, to teach the Bible. And that will put the fires out. That will protect the church. So, he's what he's saying so far? Paul is saying, good teaching leads to godliness, and tonight we're going to see that godliness adorns the gospel, makes the gospel attractive. That's the logic. Teach the truth, that will transform lives, and that will make the gospel attractive to the world around us. And it is important because the enemy teachers, the the people fueling the fires, as it were, in the church, are selling what Paul effectively calls noxious, poisonous substances unhealthy stuff Um, infection if you like in a kind of medical image under the guise of gospel truth quite scary isn't it that's why in our passage now if we get to chapter 2 now chapter 2 verse 1 Paul says this in the first verse teach what is in accord with sound doctrine so if people are Teaching unhealthy doctrine, clearly the response of a church leader is to teach sound doctrine. And actually that word sound there, we get the word hygienic from it. It really is the opposite of unhealthy teaching. He's teaching hygienic, or if you like, disinfecting, or just healthy, sound truth. Bible teaching about Jesus, about the Saviour about the freedom and the hope we have in Christ. So teach about Jesus. Teach about the beauty of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus, the promises of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the hope, the eternity, the faithfulness of Jesus. But do you notice he's not just to teach sound doctrine, is he? If you look at that really carefully, he says teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. It's not quite the same thing, is it, They're joined, but actually they're two slightly separate things. Sound doctrine and what's in accord with sound doctrine. And surely what he means there, because he's just about to go on and expand this, he means teach the good life, the living, we call it the lifestyle, that goes with sound doctrine, that conforms to sound doctrine. Or you might say in our language today, we'd say teach people how to walk, the walk that goes with the talk of the Christian message. So if you like, the instructions he's going to give, we're just going to run through them quickly now in the next verses, they are corrective instructions. It's like when your teacher at school says, um, you've got this, this, and this right, but actually here you've got it wrong. They'll help you put it right. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, in some ways your lifestyle is not matching up to not measuring alongside what we say we believe as Christians. We need to make sure it conforms is in accord with sound doctrine. And he just talks through five groups in these next verses. We're just going to quickly look through them to see where he's going with this. But he's being very practical by picking out these groups in the church family. And he starts with older men in verse 2. The commentaries tell me an older man because this is controversial, isn't it, age, is someone roughly over 40, okay? So some of you are going, oh, phew, I'm a, I'm a younger man still. They are told, aren't they, to be, well, three things, to be temperate, to be worthy of respect, still verse 2, and to be self-controlled. It does sound like they've got a bit of a problem, doesn't it, with a few things? Temperate, particularly probably in the area of drink. They're a bit too free with their wine. There's too much fooling around going on. They're not, they're not worthy of respect or seriousness, is the thing there. And they have a short temper. They're not self controlled. So grumpy old men were a feature of the church in Crete, just as they can be today. They're also told, aren't they, to be sound in three Christian virtues, faith, love, endurance, the classic three Christian virtues, faith and love and endurance. And it makes you just wonder if Paul has to point that out to them, to be healthy, to be hygienic in this area. There's clearly a challenge there for them about faith and love and endurance. Maybe just the challenge of living as Christians as as they go through the aging process is difficult, and they're losing faith, or they're getting grumpy and not loving. Or maybe the problems in the church, the fires burning in the church, are making them want to give up. And he says, no, be sound in endurance. But those are the challenges for the older men in the congregation. Then the second group is the older women, verse 3. Uh, and again, we can imagine a similar sort of age group. They're told two positives to be reverent. Uh, it is a kind of a, it's a kind of sacred holy word there, to be Dedicated to God. To be teaching what is good is the other positive, they're told. Come back to that. And they're told, you see, two negatives, verse 3. Not to slander people. And not to drink too much. An issue again with wine, it seems. Now, it's tempting here to get into debate about you know, whether these things, you know, gossiping and drinking too much, are particular female temptations. We're not going to go there. But some background, actually, is probably helpful here. Commentators mostly agree that the Roman culture of Paul's day was experiencing an unhelpful form of female liberation. Women were, if you like, catching up with some of the worst, you could say privileges, more likely weaknesses of men in their culture, in the area of drink, in the area of gossip public conversation, and in the area of sexual freedom. And the women are simply taking to themselves the unhelpful things men have been doing probably for centuries in that Roman wife culture. And it seems the Cretan culture have got something of that coming in. They're part of the Roman Empire, after all. Some of the wives in the church have adopted those ways of living without thinking, are these Christian? In the name of freedom, in fact. And this matters because, Paul's going to say, not just it's wrong, but because of what the impact is on others in the church if older women behave that way. Do you see the logic here? Verse 4, it's then, I think, in our translation, then they will be able to teach younger women. Literally, it's so that. If older women can learn to be self-controlled, and not to go down these unhelpful routes, they're to do that to be godly, so that they can help younger women to be the same. So think about teaching the young women and about modelling godliness. So we turn to the younger women in verse four and five, uh, with that the first of the so that's we've just seen, and. In some ways, the advice is very similar. The commands are quite similar, aren't they? There are six virtues that are given to them here, listed in pairs. We'll come back to those. And then there's actually a seventh, which tacks on the end. All of these things, really, are simply adapted by Paul, if you like, baptized by Paul into the Christian church, from what would have been seen as respectable ways of living in the ancient Greek and Roman culture. So, in a sense, they're not dramatic. They're not fantastically new, but they have obviously the gospel spin on them. And three pairs. The first pair is about relationships in the family. They are to love their husbands and to love their children. And again, it seems obvious, but maybe what's going on is a correction here of that. Remember that unhelpful liberation going on? Saying to women, great, go out and party. Um, get out and drink. Go and meet some men. Don't worry about your husband. And Paul's saying, actually, no, you need, you need to love your husband and be faithful to them. And you need to love your children. You can't spend the whole day in the wine bar when they need you to pick them up from school. And feed them in the evening. So, relationship in the family, that's the first pair. Second pair, relationship with temptation. They are to be self-controlled. We've seen the real issues here are probably about control of wine, drinking, and probably sexual temptation, promiscuity. And they're to be pure. Paul is calling them back to the life that's, that's given over to God in response to his grace. The life of godliness that comes from truth third pair is about their relationship with society so the family temptation society they're to be busy at home and to be kind or could be hospitable show hospitality paul's not saying here when he says they're to be busy at home that women cannot pursue a profession a job or be seen in public he's not saying that here that's how it reads isn't it He's saying that where a woman has chosen married life, they do have a God-given responsibility to their family, to their husband and children. And he's also saying that in a culture where family life, as it was then, was respected very highly, spending your days instead in idle gossip at the wine bar was not adorning the gospel, but actually bring it into scandal, even with the non-Christian friends who would look down on that. It was seen, if you look at the, the seventh commandment, to submit to their husbands. It was also seen, in terms of marriage relationships, that it was the right thing for the woman not to be unhelpfully asserting independence of her husband or publicly scandalizing him. So you can see again, the eyes of Paul here, they're always, aren't they, on how do we adorn the gospel? How do we make it attractive to the world around? You get to the second so that there. The younger men are to be self-controlled, to live this way so that, see the end of verse five, so that no one will malign the word of God. There it is again. What will the world think if you live that way? Adorn the gospel, don't undermine it. So we get to the third group, uh, sorry, the fourth group, the younger men, verses 6 to 8. And again here, the key Christian virtue that Paul says younger men are to demonstrate It's not something hugely dramatic uh, you know, to be hermits living in the desert or to give all of their money away to the poor and live in poverty. It's simply, again, self-control. Very undramatic, but that is, Paul says, that's at the heart of godliness in a church that's got the fires of unhelpful freedom culture coming into it from around, moral laxity and also moral legalism. Self-control. God-given self-control. And you can imagine, for the young men, it's often a problem for young men, isn't it, the whole thing of self-control. In the church, they need to learn this Lots of different moments that a young man might need self-control. When you get behind the wheel of your car and someone's in your way at the lights, or when you go on the internet and you're on a kind of sale website and there's lots of lovely stuff to buy, or when you're sat down in the restaurant to a slap-up Greek meal and everything on the menu looks amazing, or when you see an attractive woman at church. And Paul says, teach the young men to be self-controlled. Key, key virtue. And the interesting thing is that he doesn't expand that, except he takes us to Titus. And he says, Titus, you're a young man. You need to be the example of this. That's why I think he drills down and looks at Titus, especially in verse 7. Titus is told three things, three aspects of self-control, which as a pastor... He is to model to the, especially the men in the church, integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech. Or literally there, it's actually soundness of, of message. You could put them another way, those three things. You might say his motives are to be pure, integrity, not about status or money. His manner is to show that the gospel is a serious thing. It's neither foolish or frivolous. The gospel's a serious thing about eternity. And his message is to be sound. We've seen that. It's to be the, the wholesome Christian gospel, undiluted and not added to. And that model of good living that Titus is to show, those three things, his motives, his manner, his message, are again leading to the next so that in verse 8, the third so that. So that, he says, if you live this godly Christian example, it is so that those who oppose you, that's probably the false teachers in the church, the fires, one of the fires he's fighting, that they may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. It will confound them. They'll be looking for things to criticize you for, and they won't be able to find anything because you'll be above blame isn't that interesting that where the fires of Jewish moral legalism are burning people saying follow this rule follow this rule the last thing Titus wants is wild young men pouring fuel on the fire by the way they're behaving by living without self control it's just giving fuel to the legalistic opponents isn't it they can say you see People that follow you, Paul? They have no self control. They need our rules to help them. So that's four of the groups the good life lived by older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. What about the slaves? What is conforming to sound doctrine looked like as a slave Well, verses 9 and 10 are interesting aren't they the command there to submit to masters in everything it's actually more emphatic than it was for women with husbands isn't it in everything and they're given four ways to do that again very practical they are to please their masters they're to do it by not talking back at them so if the master gives you some feedback don't just go defensive and shout back at them. They're not to steal from them, because that discredits the gospel. They're to show that they can be trusted to carry out every request their master's making. Now, in our culture, mercifully, um, many of us are not such, uh, in such positions as slaves to masters, are we? That's not unknown in the modern world, by any means. But that relationship of slave and master in the ancient world was not unlike our modern pattern of employee working for boss. Or student, someone at school, at uni, working for your teacher, your lecturer. So these are really simple, ordinary instructions, aren't they? But Paul says they are absolutely critical the way that we relate to those to whom we give account in our work because he says, and here's the fourth so that, so that we will make the teaching about God, our saviour, attractive. There it is again. We're back where we started. Simple Christian godliness has an impact on the world far beyond what we think it can do. We've taken a tour, haven't we, of all these five groups, the, the whole spread of Titus' um, advice from Paul on how to teach those in his church. Let's just try and summarize it, and then we're going to just finish by being a bit more practical. Oops, sorry, next one. I think we summarise the whole message of those ten verses this way, that sound living conforms to sound doctrine, so as to. Here's the kind of logic of it. Uh, a, a godly lifestyle... Conforms the sound doctrine so as to confront ungodly living in believers. We see them having some challenge there, some wake up call going on, but also to confound gospel opponents in the church because they can't blame you if your lifestyle is above reproach. And here's the real big idea to commend the gospel in the world, to make the gospel look beautiful to the people around us so that they're drawn. To the Lord Jesus Christ. See that? That, I think that's the flow. That's the sense of this section in just one line. Let's get practical as we finish, though. And Here I've got five questions, really, for us. Five points to make here. um, Just to drill down and be more practical. First thing is this. Isn't it striking that the battle for truth and godliness in this passage, Paul says, is going to be won in the home. The family, isn't it, is the, the primary place, the arena, where Paul chooses to take on this issue of truth leading to godliness and to fight the fires that are raging in the church there. So the question is for us, you know, we, we'd love to see Christ lifted up in our world, in politics, in society, in the public arena, and you know, we pray for that and we search for that. But actually, Paul starts right where we are, doesn't he, in the home, the people we live with in our hall, our corridor at university. What will they see of your daily living? How will they see Christ in you? How will your life adorn the gospel for them? is that interesting? How will your life overcome those that criticize the Christian faith by the sheer godliness and purity and self-control that you show? We have a calling to live lives of self-control at home, uh, in our daily life, and also to help and teach each other to do the same. Secondly, if you're a Christian here tonight, if you're a believer, how does your doctrine look? Is your doctrine sound? Because that's where Paul starts, isn't it? Sound doctrine will help us know how to live sound lives that will speak to the world. And if you're someone that's thinking, well, actually, I'm, I'm pretty wobbly. I did a lot of stuff I don't understand and, and I'm really not sure about some of this big stuff about who Jesus really was or about what we mean by Jesus died on the cross for us, or that word grace you keep using, then keep asking, keep searching. Read your Bible. Find a Christian in the church that can help you to learn some of that stuff. Recommend a book to you, perhaps, that you can read to go a bit deeper in that stuff. We can help you with that. But let's build sound doctrine in our lives because that's what helps us to build a sound, godly life as well. How far, thirdly, how often does your life fall short? It's our prayer that our lives, our actions, will commend Jesus to the world around us. Because the problem is, if we fall short, even if some of the basic moral understanding of people around us, at uni, at work, in school, they have every reason, then, to discard the gospel, don't they? If we can't even show that we're honest, or reliable, or warm and friendly towards them, across the desk at work... Why would they listen to the gospel if they themselves have higher standards in some ways than we do? Let's not fall short, Paul is saying. Let's actually pull people up. And similarly, how far does your life conform to the world? That's this thing about the fire of the culture. That freedom, that moral laxity coming into our church thinking and living. Our culture is pressing us to be more free at the moment in lots of ways. Sexuality would be one example. But actually, how we spend money on ourselves, our self-indulgence, culture's very big on self-indulgence, very small on self-control, isn't it? Paul's the other way around. Let's not put rules where God didn't put rules. We are free in Christ, but where we're called to be godly, to be self-controlled, let's build our life on sound doctrine so that the people around can see the gospel being lived out as it transforms our lives in self-control a life that conforms to the world around us will not speak to people of Christ at all but a life that's ordinary and yet spectacularly different because it's godly will make Jesus attractive and then lastly there's a lot here of wisdom About passing on, teaching, encouraging, even warning each other. Older women, younger women, older men, younger men, and so on. So, the question for you and me is who am I encouraging, helping, teaching, training, spurring on, and who's helping, teaching, training, encouraging me? It's good to think of it both ways, isn't it? Who am I praying for? Who am I challenging? Who am I reading the Bible with? Who am I encouraging by giving them good books to read or, or good podcasts to listen to? Or just good advice for how to be a godly student, a godly husband or wife? And who's helping you in the same way? So lots to pray about. And we finish where we started, don't we, with the the big idea, the key verse here, verse 10. In the strength of Christ, make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. The gospel, you see, at work in the lives of ordinary believers has the power to make the teaching about Jesus attractive in every family, every school, every workplace, every office, every campus, and beyond. Let's pray, because it's all grace. Let's pray that as we commit ourselves to live lives that conform to sound doctrine, in the power of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the grace of Christ, we will spur each other on to those lives, that we will confound those that oppose them, that oppose the gospel, and we will confirm and demonstrate the glory of the gospel in our ordinary but spectacularly different Christian lives. Let's pray, and I'm going to suggest that as a prayer, to gather those thoughts, we join together in the prayer which is actually printed on your service sheet at the top there. So if you'd like to take the sheet and turn to the front, and the top, there's a prayer taken from a a Church of England prayer for general thanksgiving, it's called. As we pray that we may be strengthened by God to live lives that make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Let's pray this prayer together, and then Jason's going to continue. So we say, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. Give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts, we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days, through Christ our Lord. Amen.